Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to a history of Europe, key battles, the Battle of Dieu of 1509, and the Portuguese voyages of exploration, part one of four. At the turn of the year 1488, a Portuguese fleet led by the sea captain Bartolomeu Dias past the Cape of Good Hope at the extreme southern end of the continent of Africa. It was a moment of huge historical importance. They were the first Europeans to make the journey all the way around Africa, opening the first chapter in the conquest by European nations of the trade of the Indian Ocean. In an astonishingly short period of time, the Portuguese and other Europeans built vast new trading empires whose profits were used to expand their power and influence across the globe. There is a misconception that long-distance sea trade only began at this time. But by the time Bartolomeu Dias arrived, communities across Africa, Asia and the Mediterranean had already been exchanging their wares for thousands of years and a vast network driven by the monsoon winds of the Indian Ocean. Two thousand years ago, for example, the trade network connected places as far-flung as China, Rome and southern African kingdoms such as Great Zimbabwe. According to Discover magazine, November 2016, quote, In terms of the sheer amount of goods moved, the maritime trading system rivaled its more famous inland relative, the Silk Road. End quote. Trade was in all kinds of goods, from silk, spices, textiles, and Arabian horses. One of the many busy ports around the edge of the Indian Ocean was Goa an island just off the coast of western India, which ended up becoming a Portuguese colony. Earlier in history, in 1350, Goa was conquered by a Muslim sultanate, but 20 years later recovered by the rival Hindu Vijay Nagar Empire, who retained the island until the arrival of the Portuguese. Although political leadership of the ocean was divided between Muslims, Hindus and Buddhists, most of the traders of the region were Muslim. Beginning in the 15th century, however, with the expansion of European exploration and China's withdrawal from international affairs, the world's economic focus shifted decisively westward. And it is this period which Western historians have traditionally concentrated on. There was much work to be done on understanding the history of the Indian Ocean before the arrival of the Portuguese at the turn of the 16th century. 
the subject of this podcast is the remarkable story of the first European explorers into the area. In the 14th century, the crown of Portugal held only a narrow sliver of land on the edge of Western Europe. Its very existence as an independent state looked in doubt, while its large neighbour, the Kingdom of Castile, had ambitions to expand across the whole of the Iberian Peninsula. In 1385, King John, or João in Portuguese, the first of Portugal, founder of the ruling house of Aviz, snatched the county's crown and asserted his independence from Castile. The crucial event was the Battle of Alejo Barata on the 14th of August 1385, in which the Portuguese archers successfully repelled a Castilian attack. King John went on to reign for 45 years until 1433, which went a long way to help stabilise the Portuguese kingdom. Yet Portugal was not only one of the poorest areas in Western Europe, but also one of the most isolated, on the continent's far southwestern corner. As Roger Crowley puts it in his book, Conquerors, How Portugal Forged the First Global Empire, quote, it was Portugal's fate and fortune to be locked out of the busy Mediterranean arena of trade and ideas. On the outer edge of Europe, peripheral to the Renaissance, the Portuguese could only look endlessly at the wealth of cities such as Venice and Genoa, which had cornered the market in the luxury goods of the Orient, spices, silks and pearls, traded through the Islamic cities of Alexandria and Damascus, and sold on at monopoly prices. Instead, they faced the ocean. End quote. At times, the kings of Portugal worked in collaboration with Castile, most notably in the Battle of Rio Salado, as described in a previous episode. This battle was fought near Seville in 1340, when a joint Christian army crushed a Muslim invasion force from North Africa. It helped ensure that the hold of the Christians on southern Spain was from then on secure. The last Muslim state in Iberia, the Sultanate of Granada, held out for a while in the mountains of the Sierra Nevada, but no longer posed a threat. The rulers of Portugal now sought to expand across the Straits of Gibraltar into northern Africa. In part, the reason was strategic, since control of the Straits would bring economic benefits and military security but they also saw themselves as successors to four centuries of crusaders who had reclaimed the Iberian Peninsula for Christianity in the so-called Reconquista, or Reconquest. This ideology was by no means confined to the Iberian Peninsula, but to all territories in Muslim hands which had once been controlled by the Christian Visigoths, including in North Africa. In the case of Portugal, this meant North and West Morocco. In the second half of the 1300s and first decade of the 1400s, Portugal was held back by the ravages of the Black Death. But from 1411, when the plague subsided and a peace was made with Castile, Portugal entered a period of economic recovery. The target for Portuguese aggression became the ancient port of Theuta. Founded by the ancient Romans on the coast of North Africa at the Straits of Gibraltar, Theuta had been briefly occupied by the Visigoths. In the year 711, it had served as a springboard for an invasion that led to the Muslim conquest of Iberia, and for subsequent Islamic invasions up to and including that of the Almohads. 
Theatre was also one of just three places on the Moroccan side of the strait that possessed fairly secure anchorages, the other two being Tangier and Al-Qasar al-Sagir. Theatre was nominally within the Sultanate of the Marinid dynasty, based in the city of Fez. But Marinid authority was weak, and in practice, theatre was run by its own merchant elite. Thanks to a strategic point by the Straits, and at the end of the Trans-Saharan trade routes, theatre had grown into a major commercial port, trading in grain, ivory, ebony, slaves and gold. And it was this wealth that King John of Portugal intended to capture for himself. In August 1415, King John personally led an expedition consisting of about 20,000 men to attack Theuta. On arrival, it was found that the town governor had prepared his defences well, so the Portuguese fleet temporarily withdrew. The governor, believing that the threat had passed, dismissed many of his men, but a few days later the Portuguese returned and caught the defenders by surprise. Many fled, there was little resistance, and the attackers broke into the city and brutally sacked it for three days. Places of worship were defiled, houses broken into, and methodically looted. The inhabitants were hunted down from wherever they were hiding, and tortured to find out where they had hidden their treasures. When order was finally restored, the victors held a triumphant ceremony in the city's principal mosque, which had been hastily converted into a makeshift church. The capture of Theuta gave Portugal access to gold imported via the Saharan caravans from West Africa, enabling the Royal Mint to strike gold coins for the first time for over 50 years. The economic gains were not as much as hoped because of the large costs of defending the town and also because some Muslim traders shifted their business elsewhere. But without doubt it was a major boost for the prestige of Portugal, serving notice to the rest of Europe that this small country, despite her relative poverty, could achieve a major victory against the Muslim foe at a time when, in the rest of Europe, Christians were on the defensive. The event also began a long-term involvement of Portugal in the affairs of Morocco. Despite further attempts, it was not until 1458 when the Portuguese made any further gains in North Africa. In that year, they launched an attack on the port of Alcazar al-Sagir, which was easily captured due to disunity among the Muslim defenders. In 1460, in 1463 and again in 1464, King Afonso V of Portugal led attempts to seize the city of Tangier supplemented by a series of destructive raids upon several coastal cities of Morocco. Tangiers would not be able to hold out for much longer. In 1471, King Afonso, the head of 400 ships, carrying an army of 30,000, fell upon the port city of Asila. As depicted on a series of tapestries still hanging in Lisbon, 12 large cannons pounded the city walls, which were breached after four days. The city fell by storm, the city violently sacked, and the garrison massacred. The city of Tangier, fearful on hearing of the atrocities committed at Asila, decided not to fight, but to sue for terms. After the capture of Tangier, Portuguese power and influence continued to grow. Afonso had been accompanied by his 15-year-old son, Prince John, and it was this prince who in the 1470s increasingly assumed responsibility for Portuguese military activity in North Africa, and continued to do so when he ascended to the throne as King John II of Portugal.
John was more interested in Atlantic Morocco than the North, organising raids on the ports along the coast, thereby forcing their rulers to accept trading terms which benefited Portugal. So there became two distinct zones of Portuguese activity in Morocco. In the first zone, around the Straits of Gibraltar, the Portuguese began to meet increasingly stubborn resistance. In the second zone, southwest along the West African coast, they enjoyed more success. The subject of the rest of this episode. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At the start of the 15th century, Europeans understood little about the Atlantic outside their own coastal waters. Also, the Arabs who settled on the coast of Morocco had little interest in exploring the Atlantic, which they called the Green Sea of Darkness. For them, the land routes across the Sahara Desert between North and Central Africa were well known and safer. The prime contemporary source for the Portuguese expeditions of discovery along the West African coast is a chronicler named Gomez Yanes de Zuzara in a work called The Chronicle of the Discovery and Conquest of Guinea. Zuzara stressed how slow and hesitant progress was beyond a particular point on the coast known as Cape Bojador, about two-thirds down the coast of modern Morocco. He describes the apprehension of Europeans sailing beyond this threshold of the known world. Barnaby Rogerson, in his book The Last Crusaders, writes that it was widely feared that the very strong current that sweeps along the shore would make any return beyond that point impossible. This part of the coast, he continues, also marked a climatic, cultural and emotional frontier. As one sails south towards Bojador, quote, all recognisable signs of Mediterranean life, trees, cultivation, farmland, villages, houses, man and goat, have gradually bleached out of the landscape, to be replaced by the savage intensity of the empty lands of the Western Sahara. The shoreline is awesomely sterile, overlooked by wind-eroded cliffs, protected by reefs under the tidal reach of the rocky shore, everywhere presenting a razor-like surface. End quote. Yet, as the century wore on, perceptions among Europeans changed rapidly, with the Portuguese at the vanguard of a sustained endeavour to discover what lay beyond the frontiers of the known world. They developed the ships, navigational techniques and expertise to enable a series of missions that travelled ever further down the Atlantic coast of Africa. The individual most closely linked to this considerable achievement was the third son of King John I of Portugal, known to history as Henry the Navigator. 
Portrayed by future generations as the founding father of Europe's global expansion, Henry the Navigator was instrumental in organising and funding the African missions, although he never personally travelled further than northern Morocco. Between 1419 and 1434, Henry commissioned some 15 separate attempts to push the trade frontiers of Portugal to the south. He interviewed the returning captains about their experiences and discoveries, and then collated the information for use in future expeditions. His prime motive was economic, to tap into West African gold trade. But there was also a strong element of furthering the crusade movement against the Muslims, in particular attempting to find an ally in his fight against the Moroccans. Henry hoped, above all, to find the legendary Prester John, a supposed powerful Christian ruler believed in this period to reside somewhere in the interior of North East Africa. The legend came from travellers' tales and a hazy understanding that there was actual Christian communities beyond Europe. Nestorians in Central Asia, followers of St Thomas in India, an ancient Christian kingdom in the highlands of Ethiopia. As Roger Crowley puts it, this dazzling mirage would maintain a powerful hold over the imagination and strategies of the Portuguese. Confusion among the Europeans was furthered by their belief that India and East Africa were joined together. And so it was that a mix of half-truths, wishful thinking and mistaken geography that came to lure the Europeans step by step further down the African coast. It was not until 1434 when finally a Portuguese sea captain succeeded in passing Cape Borjador. Encouraged by this success, Henry the Navigator decided to put more resources into his expeditions of discovery. He licensed Italian merchants to fit out ships and sponsor further voyages, always reserving a share of the profits for himself. His project was also boosted by significant improvements in ship design. Portuguese shipwrights succeeded in creating a type of sailing craft, strong enough to ride up oceanic storms, but light enough to navigate estuaries and river mouths, and that was called the caravel. These were equipped with a type of triangular sail, called the latine, which responded to the slightest breeze and made it possible to sail closer to the wind than the traditional square rig allowed. Between the years 1444 and 1446, several Portuguese captains took their ship beyond the Saharan littoral into the waters of Upper Guinea, reaching in quick succession the River Senegal, Cape Verde and the River Gambia. Here the terrain changed once more. The desert was replaced by mangrove swamps and rainforests. South of the Gambia, along the shores of Guinea, progress was again slowed by treacherous currents which took time to master, and by African tribesmen who fired poisoned arrows. Then, in 1461, the first Portuguese ship finally managed to skirt the shores of Sierra Leone, and reached the area of modern-day Liberia. In the 27 years since passing Cape Bojador, Portuguese navigators had explored about 4,000 kilometres of West Africa's coasts and rivers, previously unknown to the Europeans. The author A.R. Disney, in his book A History of Portugal and the Portuguese Empire, describes how coastal features such as bays, headlands, shoals, rocks and anchorages were meticulously noted. In the process, the Portuguese developed a great tradition of long-distance sailing and accumulated much invaluable local knowledge. The explorers marvelled at the new sights that few, if any, Europeans had ever seen before, 
In the forest lived unusual animals such as chimpanzees, baboons, forest elephants and hippopotami. The local people they met spoke a bewildering variety of languages and practised exotic customs. Yet to the local tribes, the Portuguese must have appeared equally curious, as they clambered onto beaches dressed in suits of armour with cries of Portugal and St George, and planted wooden crosses to announce that land had been taken for Christ. The Portuguese hoped to find an easy way to tap into local markets, especially of gold, yet this proved more challenging than hoped. The trading posts around Guinea were widely scattered and the seasonal caravans almost impossible to track down. Apart from little gold, writes Nigel Cliff in his book The Last Crusade, The Epic Voyages of Vasco da Gama, the goods the explorers sent home, such as antelope, skin, amber, sweet resin, turtle fat, dates and ostrich eggs, were colourful but hardly world-changing. Even worse, the Africans were so dismissive of the rough cloth the Portuguese offered to trade that Henry the Navigator was forced to buy fine garments in Morocco for resale in Guinea. The one trade item that was immediately profitable for the Portuguese was human beings. Their first major slaving mission took place in the year 1441. Quiet fishing villages on the island of Arguin, just off the midpoint of West Africa's bulge, were attacked, and 240 of their men, women and children captured and packed into ships bound for Europe. While clearly profoundly immoral and tragic for the captured, Nigel Cliffs puts the Portuguese slave trade into the context of the time. Quote, slavery was rife in the medieval world. Entire Muslim societies had been built on slavery. The numbers were so vast that in the 9th century, half a million slaves had rebelled in Iraq. Many were sold by the mercantile republics of Italy. Genoa was particularly unfussy about where its human cargo came from, and large numbers of Orthodox Christians regularly appeared on its blocks. More were transported across the Caucasus and the Sahara, or were seized by the pirates of the Barbary coast from Europe's shores. By one count, the pirates carried off away more than a million men, women and children for sale in the markets of North Africa. Few nations were unblemished by the traffic, and few saw anything wrong with the trade. End quote. In the year 1460, Henry the Navigator passed away. For decades he had stubbornly persisted in promoting his voyages of discovery, urging his captains to sail on ever further. To many Portuguese he is seen as a heroic visionary and the father of an embryonic empire, and in history of the world he can be seen as a significant figure. Certainly without his influence the European age of discovery would have evolved slower and perhaps turned out very differently. After Henry's death there was a pause of nine years before the expeditions began again. Then, in 1471, the Portuguese finally found in Ghana the regular supplies of gold that had long eluded them. This, and the crossing of the equator for the first time two years later, reignited the interest of the Portuguese rulers and people. At last it seemed a real possibility to be able to fulfil the long-awaited European dream of finding a sure route to the distant reaches of Asia, that is, if only the southern tip of Africa could be found and circumnavigated. The Portuguese expeditions of discovery received new impetus when in 1481 a new king ascended to the throne, John II. Aged 26, John had a black beard, was physically well built and possessed an air of gravity and authority. 
On his accession, he embarked on an intense period of exploration, which had three main aims. To find a route to the Indies, to find the fabled kingdom of Prester John, and most immediately to assert Portugal's claims to the monopoly of trade along the West African coast. The two outstanding captains of this period were Diego Chao and Bartolomeu Diaz. Unfortunately, the sources for the expeditions of Diego Chao are fragmentary and contradictory so that details are still under debate among historians. In 1482, he reached the delta of the Congo River, where he set up the first of a series of stone pillars, topped with a cross bearing the arms of Portugal, that from now on would mark the boundaries of the Portuguese discoveries. It is believed that in 1486, Charles went yet further, as far as Namibia, just 500 miles from the southern tip of Africa. Yet it was not Diego Charles' name who would go down in history, because he died on the way home while trying to explore the Congo. The achievement of reaching the end of Africa fell to the commander Bartolomé Díaz. There are no surviving contemporary accounts of his historic voyage of 1487, but his outline has been reconstructed from later literary sources. Díaz followed the path of Diego Chao as far as Namibia, and here he took a remarkable decision. In order to get round the strong contrary currents and winds, he turned his ships away from the shore and set out into the void of the westerly ocean. No one is sure why this happened, whether it was a pre-planned initiative or decided on the moment, perhaps based on intuition and their experience of the Atlantic winds. Either way, the manoeuvre was a great success. The ships picked up western winds between 35 and 40 degrees south, with these behind them, Diaz sailed eastwards, then north till he reached the African shoreline. In February 1488, he landed at what is today Mossel Bay, having rounded the southernmost tip of Africa without actually seeing it. The Portuguese sailed on and came across a strong, warm current flowing from the northeast, providing convincing proof that they had reached the Indian Ocean. At this point, Diaz reluctantly agreed to the appeals of his crew to turn back, given dangerously low level of supplies on board. So he erected a pillar and set sail back to Portugal. On the way, they made first sight of Cape Algujas, the most southerly point on the African continent, and next the far more imposing Cape of Good Hope, which later came to symbolise the passageway from the Atlantic to the Indian Ocean. A crucial point had been reached in the Portuguese voyages of discovery, and ahead lay the promised land of maritime Asia. You've been listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. You can get in touch on the Facebook page or Twitter at History Europe KB or directly at carl at historyeurope.net, the email address, or the blog on www.historyeurope.net. Please join me next time for part two of the Battle of Dew and the Portuguese Discovery of Maritime Asia. Until then, all the best and goodbye.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 